second message in the book of Hebrews. A few weeks back, he introduced the book of Hebrews, looking at the first five verses. Just to remind you, this book is written to Jewish Christians who have been scattered across the Roman Empire due to persecution in Palestine, Judea, Galilee, across North Africa, in the Middle East, even as far as Rome. In AD 49, the emperor kicked all Jews out of Rome. So they went to other places in North Africa and Turkey. And we know that Paul met many in various cities where they established synagogues. Now we're not totally sure the author, but it's traditionally believed that Paul wrote this book. Though it could be another Jewish man like Barnabas or Apollos or Aquila, somebody grounded in the gospel, but of a Jewish background. But traditionally, because he mentions the acquaintance of Timothy in chapter 13, most scholars feel this is written by Paul while in Italy and circulated to Jewish believers across the empire to encourage them that in this time of persecution to cling to Jesus the Savior. Just to remind you, there's an outline in your bulletin. It's the same one I have in front of me. If you want to take notes. Last time, we looked at the fact that God said, in the past, in the Old Testament era, God spoke many times, many ways, a prophetic word through both men and women, through prophets, through angels, through great prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Moses, through more minor prophets. He spoke in dreams and visions, but 
this time. God spoke during his, this time through his son, Jesus Christ. This son, who he says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. In John chapter 1. So there's this prophetic ministry of the Son. Revealing to us the kingdom of God. The priesthood of God. The kingship of God and giving to us this final complete word of God. We don't need another prophet to explain or reveal God. We don't read, need Muhammad or someone else. We have Jesus and the completed New Testament canon. He ends verse 5 by saying, and this is what he talks about in verses 6 to 14. There are angels, but my son, is different than the angels. So he says in the verse of I about Jesus Christ, you are my son. Today I have begotten thee. Now, several Greek words speak of the idea of being begotten. One word is monogenos. We get the idea, the generation from God is his son. The genome, the DNA, so to speak, of God, the son is the same. As God the Father. It's translated. Begotten. But don't think of this. As. Human terms. That a man. Has a relationship. With a woman. And begats. A child. Jesus. Is testified. As being from all eternity, God's Son, equal to Him, in power, in being, in essence. But the idea is that at a point in time, in the incarnation, this Son became also a human being. He became a man. 
represent, represent mankind in the dispute of sin to be the mediator of the new covenant doing God and man. So, this son, my proposition is that he is greater by name and position and power than the angels. And my points are simple. Point one, you are my son. And point two, Jesus the Son is the righteous king. From verses 8 to 14. So God the Father, the author of Hebrews, speaking by the inspiration of the Spirit, is very clear in his writing. He's quoting from the Psalms and from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 32, 43, Psalm 97, you are my son. I have begotten thee. And then he says, again, I will be a father to him. He will be to me an eternal son. Again, John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God face to face from all eternity. The Son resting in the bosom of the Father in complete fellowship and harmony with the Father. The Son says, I am His Father. You are my Son. Brothers and sisters, see very clearly that the Father and the Son, the other one God, are distinct persons with distinct functions. And the Son is obedient to the Father and does the Father's will. These are not three gods 
brings Christ into the world. Verse 6. He brings him in as the firstborn, representing the Father. Now, in a way, Adam was God's firstborn, and Cain, Adam's firstborn. But the writer is making a distinction that here's the incarnation of Jesus, the firstborn, God's son, coming into the world, taking on humanity. Yet, while fully human, without sin. And that's important for our salvation. And quoting from uh, Psalm 104, I believe it is, or Psalm 97, to which is the angels. The angels, the author says, let the angels of God worship the Son. The angels are not given worship, are not due worship, but are given worship even by this great group of great beings. Um, this quote, again, it's from Deuteronomy 32, but it's actually the author is using the Greek translation, the Septuagint, which adds the phrase, the angels worship. So if you go back and look in your English Bible, you'll see that phrase has been added. And the author picks it up and uses it. We expect by the inspiration of the Spirit that he's not making an editorial side note. But the angels are not worshipped because they're not deity. They lack the power, the name, the position of the Son. We see in society Many people want to give great honor and worship to angels. They believe angels might do something great for you if you're in trouble. But that's unbiblical. Our worship is to God the Father. And God the Son. God the Spirit. And 
Some people ascribe great power to the fallen angel, the devil, who rebelled against God and was kicked out of heaven. And yet, he's a created being with power. But these are errors of humans. You don't worship the angels who serve God. You don't worship the angels who disobeyed God. But our honor is to the Son. Now, he tells us about the angelic ministry. Verse 7. It's distinct from the sun. The angels, these spirits, are ministers of flames of fire. Later on, he says they're ministering spirits. He's quoting here Psalm 104, verse 4. There's a list of the verses at the bottom of your outline. If you notice in your English Bible, these are quotations that the author knows the Old Testament very well. Do you ever notice that Mary when confronted, visited by Gabriel, was afraid. Zacharias, six months earlier, by the same angel, was afraid. Because they're not like humanity. They're powerful, intellectual spirits. Who are like flames of fire. No wonder why Zacharias was afraid. Mary was disturbed. God has used angels to bring judgment. Like on Sodom. And Gomorrah. He used angels to bring a plague of death on the firstborn of Egypt. He has brought angels to do his bidding, his bidding and even bring judgment so we can see one. They're different, they're powerful, they're fearsome, but not to be worshipped. That honor goes to God in three persons. Notice in verse 8, 
He doesn't say this about the angels, but about the Son. To the Son, the author of Hebrews, speaking God's words, God the Father's message to these Hebrew Christians. Your throne, O oh God, is forever and ever. God the Father is describing to God the Son kingship and a kingdom in the line of David forever and ever a perpetual kingship. Brothers and sisters, read this book and you'll see very clearly that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one, as prophet, priest, king. The opening chapter, God spoke, this is my prophet. Here, he's a king. He has an eternal throne. And in other chapters, this is my priest forever in the order of Melchizedek who gives a better sacrifice for sin that takes away sin once and for all. So the Messiah, prophet, priest, king, and this king, what's he carrying? A scepter of righteousness. And he, he hated lawlessness. This king is a righteous king. Jeremiah says, this is the righteous branch. Jeremiah 23, verse 6 and 33, 16. The righteous branch of David will come. What is his name? His name is the Lord, our righteousness. This is the Son, Jesus. Righteous, without sin. His record is perfect. His obedience is perfect, and it's His record given to us as His people, as His saints. And this righteous King hates iniquity or lawlessness. Isaiah 63. Isaiah has a vision of a great conqueror coming up out of Edom. The conqueror, Edom, the enemy of God, but conquered 
by a man in bloody clothes says he represents and fights for God's glory and he is righteous. It's a vision of Jesus, the Messiah, who conquers sin and death and all God's enemies. He has love, righteousness, hated lawlessness. Now notice, the author says, God, your God, the God of the Son of God, has called him and anointed him with the oil, gladness, and more than his companions. Again, quoting back in Isaiah 61, this God linked to the Son has anointed him. Jesus anointed not with oil as the Old Testament prophets, but at his baptism with the Holy Spirit. And go back to verse 8. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever. What does God, speaking through the author, call the Son? He calls him God. Many people want to say, okay, Jesus is a son, but he's not God. But again, verse 8, your throne, speaking of the son, your throne is the throne of God. He's equating the son as divine. Now, What does he say? This Son of God, the Lord, in the beginning, is the Creator. With God the Father, God the Spirit, you laid the foundations of earth and the heavens, the work of your hands. We don't have time to look at all the cross-references that the author is quoting. I encourage you to look up these verses. But the Son is said to be the Creator. Again, it's a fallacy to contextualize. We see this in modern culture. They don't like the concept of fathers because fathers in some circles are abusive drunks. So let's talk about 
that's wrong. God the Father is a just and good Father who created, but the Son created also. You, Lord, in the beginning did this, made heaven and earth. The angels didn't do it. He says in verse 11, all that of creation will perish in some way. But you, O Son, you, the Lord, the Creator, will remain. And what does Hebrews 13, 8 say? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and tomorrow. God the Son is eternal, unchangeable. Immutable. But there will be an end to the heavens and the earth. We don't understand how. But when Jesus Christ returns, it will be remade. And even you and I, as believers, will gain a new body suited for the heavenly realm. But Jesus is unchanged. He remains the second person of the Godhead. He remains an eternal spirit, fully man, with a new glorified body. Um, the author says, he gives a word picture that heaven and earth are like a, a cloak or a garment you have that's worn out, that you take it down you roll it up and you throw it away because it's no good. Again, he's quoting an Old Testament passage. He's ascribing this to heaven and earth will be changed. But, again, the years of the sun, he's the same. Your years will not fail. So Christ, the Son, no beginning, no end, and no time is he kicked off the throne. At no time is he out of fellowship with his Father, except for those days at the cross when he separated as a penalty for sin. But he was still the Son of God. And again, 
moment, the contrast. Here's the sun. What does he say about angels? You Hebrew Christians, remember, did God anywhere in the scriptures say to an angel, Gabriel, Michael, whoever, sit here on my throne at my right hand. Never. The right hand always signifies blessing, fellowship, honor, and love. The left hand, lesser blessing, dishonor, shame, even cursing. Where does Jesus sit? At the right hand of his Father. When did this happen? Mark 16 says, after Jesus finished speaking to the apostles after the resurrection, giving them their commission, giving them authority and power and promising the Spirit, the Scripture said, he was taken up into heaven to sit where he has his designated seat of honor for all eternity to continue his priesthood to make intercession for his people. The atonement been complete and God the Father pleased with the Son. So God the Father says, My Son, come back to your former state of glory and sit on the eternal throne. And when you pray through Jesus, the mediator, the priest, where does Jesus sit? Right next to the Father, whom he's in fellowship. Does the God the Father hear our prayers? Yes, because the Son is right there in unity and fellowship with his Father. He never said that to the angels but he promised to the son this glory this kingship this kingdom asking me I will give all the nations to be your inheritance he's quoting Psalm 110 here all my enemies, your enemies, will be like a footstool under your feet, O King, O God whose throne is forever. Be encouraged, brother, 
brothers and sisters. The king has conquered. You have nothing to fear because Christ is king. Satan's head has been crushed by his heel. All he is is a withering snake in death throes. Yes, these fallen angels for a time have limited power, but do not worship them. Do not fear them. Do not submit to them. Christ is king. Amen. Believe that. So you can go with all authority in the name of the Son, whose enemies are surely conquered. And Revelation says, there comes a time when all men, all leaders, all rulers, all kingdoms will stand before the judgment throne of Christ Jesus. And Satan and his minions and the beast and all those fearsome things of revelation will be cast into the lake of fire. They cannot stand before the righteous king. Revelation says he sits on horseback with a mighty sword in his mouth. The glorious, righteous, conquering king who destroys all the enemies of God. <laughs> Lastly, he makes a comment about the angels again. The angels are so different in name, position, being, power, authority than God the Son. But angels are given to you. And he's quoting here. I believe uh, Psalm 103 verses 20 and 21. God sends angels into this world to be ministering spirits. Sometimes they bring a message. Sometimes they bring judgment. Sometimes they come and he says here and cares for God's people. I don't think any of us understand what that means very well. What does it mean that God's ministering spirits 
on ministry to you. I don't know. Do they speak to our spirit sometimes? I don't know. Do they pull us out of danger? Sometimes I don't know. People believe that. But many believers do believe that God has left us with angels to help us. But our help is in the Lord, not on the creature. Has God for help? Has God to help you? Our help is in Christ. Our help is in the Lord. But he could use an angel. Mark chapter 1 tells us when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness without giving us details of the temptation like Matthew and Luke do. Mark just says, the, the devil came and did to Jesus. But God sent some angels to help Jesus. So, God is good as a shepherd. But the angels are not like the sun. But they do good for God's kingdom. So, be thankful for God's providence and God's grace. Action points. I'd like you to keep reading. Hebrews 2. Especially chapter 2. And do you personally recognize this Jesus, prophet, priest, and king, as your Lord and your Savior? Do you hear him? Like Deuteronomy 6 said, Hear, O Israel, and submit and obey. It's all about Jesus. The door, the way, the truth, the life, the bread of heaven, the resurrection, the life, the true vine, the living water, is all we need. He's the blessing and the blesser. And because you trust in Christ, will you please ask God for the opportunity this week to tell others the good news about Jesus, the Son of God, who paid for sin, who gives us the word, gives us the spirit. Jesus is good news. It's good for us. It's good for others. So let's tell somebody. Ask God for that opportunity. The world goes.
truth, Nana. I don't like Jesus. Tell me something about Islam. Tell me, tell me something about health, wealth, prosperity. Don't talk to me about sin and Jesus. But this is what they must hear. It's Jesus. It's good news. When one of the men pray for us, save my voice.